Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have another great interview in store for you all today. I chat with Dr. Arandi Da Silva. She's the co-founder of Forge Biologics, a company that produces AAV and is based in Columbus, Ohio. We get into her career journey and what it's like running a hybrid company that's both a CDMO and also has their own IND and clinical trial that's currently enrolling. It's a pretty neat approach and one that I'm completely inspired by. Uh, I hope you learn a lot from this conversation with Dr. De Silva. And as always, if you enjoy our content, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast. Uh, so today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Arandi De Silva. She's a biotech founder, scientist, and immigrant. She's experienced in new company ideation, fundraising, and operations. And she's passionate about the effective communication of science and diversifying our workplaces. She's the founder of Forge Biologics, and I'm excited to get into her career journey today and all of her work on gene therapy. So welcome, Dr. De Silva, to Lady Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for having me. Thanks for being here. So I want to start out with Forge Biologics. Can you tell us the story of how this company came about? Yeah, absolutely. So Forge was founded just under three years ago, and we have done a lot in the last three years. We are a gene therapy focused company. We are a hybrid company. That means part of our business is devoted, the majority of our business is devoted to contract development and manufacturing services or CDMO. So we're building a large facility here in Columbus, Ohio, that has 20 GMP manufacturing suites, all dedicated to manufacturing AAV-based gene therapies at scale. Uh, we also have internal process development capabilities, analytical development capabilities, and a large team focused on delivering quality gene therapy products to our client base, which is biotech and pharmaceutical companies. Um, and we're really focused on making sure that we can accelerate timelines for these clients through our deep expertise in, you know, gene therapy development and manufacturing. So that's the majority of our business focus. But because we have, you know, built so much capacity and, and brought so many folks along into our company that have experience in gene therapy, we also recognized that there was an opportunity to do our own therapeutics pipeline development. And so part of our company actually is focused on developing and bringing forward our own therapeutic products. Again, AAV-based gene therapy products. Uh, we have, you know, in the last three years, filed an IND for our lead candidate, which is a gene therapy that is specifically intended to treat patients with a severe neurodegenerative disorder called CRAB-A disease. We have launched a clinical trial that is open right now and enrolling patients, all while you know, also building a CDMO and recruiting over 320 employees to the company um, in Columbus, Ohio. Wow. Uh such an impressive roster of work that you've accomplished in the last few years. I'd love to know how you got connected with this company and kind of your story as far as um, the founding and putting the pieces in place to be able to build out a site and have the runway and, and the resources to file an IND and, and start a clinical trial. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the story of Forge is very connected to uh, the place in which it's built. So Columbus, Ohio. And there is a lot of maybe, maybe you know this, maybe people don't know this, but there's a lot of talent here in the gene therapy industry. Uh, some of the foundational work around one of the first approved AAV based gene therapy products called Zolgensma which is uh, a gene therapy that was approved for treating um, spinal muscular atrophy, was actually done right here in Columbus, Ohio. And there is a lot of deep experience, not only around 
AAV-based gene therapy development, but also the manufacturing of it and understanding how to scale it and bringing forward, bringing it forward to become uh, products that are accessible uh, to a larger market. Um, so ideally, this was a place which was kind of ready for um, a company like Forge, which was really built to address what we saw three years ago as a huge deficit in the amount of available manufacturing space for, again, serving some of this burgeoning industry in gene therapy. And when we were fundraising for this concept, this concept of this hybrid company, you know, we really were were selling also the place in which we wanted to build it. We understood that we would have a lot of talent available to, you know, bring into this company. We understood that our team could also make maybe that investment dollar go a little bit further in a place like Ohio, where it is a little bit cheaper to get space to build a large factory, you know, as I said, with 20 GMP suites that we have now. Um, and also maybe easier to recruit people because again, their own um, paycheck and salary can go a little bit further here as well. And all of this was launched right around when the world had shut down for the big pandemic that we have all just lived through. Um, so it was a really interesting time to found this business, not only because of having to do it virtually and uh, bring together a team and scale that company and team in an environment um, that you know was a little bit uncertain economically and, and health-wise for people, but also because it was at a time when I think the public at large was really realizing the value of scientists and their role in developing new therapeutic products and the value of biomanufacturing facilities that can be built to operationalize efficiently and bring therapies to patients fast and efficiently. Yeah, you you touched on something which I think is relatively well known within the gene therapy sector, which is this constrained biomanufacturing capacity. Um, and you obviously started this company at a time when that, I think, knowledge was seeping into the public sector when it came to, you know, developing vaccines and having capacity to uh, crank out new therapeutics for, for the pandemic. Um, how, you know, how has that sector changed over the last couple of years? Do you feel like it's getting better? Because the last stat I heard is that essentially we don't have enough biomanufacturing capacity to even uh, generate all of the AAV we would want to if we were to like fulfill every company's pipeline of promised gene therapy treatments. Um, I'm just curious, like as an insider, if, if your view on that is, is accurate and if you think, um, you know, companies like yours and companies like Resilience are putting a dent in that kind of shortage. I think we're all trying to. I think we firsthand really see the need in this space and are experiencing it not only as biotech developers ourselves, but also because we're interacting with so many clients or who are biotech developers themselves. So, you know, this gap really is not being well addressed at this moment. And that's what we are really building and scaling our business to be able to address and also grow with the industry as the demand is um, increasing. So very early on in the you know, founding of this company, we did an independent analysis, a landscape analysis to understand, you know, how many AEV products are in development how many are progressing and what kinds of manufacturing 
scale or need will they need as they, you know, assuming success, progress through the different phases of clinical trials, how much capacity will they need? And we found that this this landscape or this um, number of companies is just exponentially growing, right? So I think we found something like 450 uh, different gene therapy, AAV-specific gene therapy assets that were in development at the time of the landscape assessment. About 30 of those have actually progressed in development over you know the 18 months since we ran that analysis and the sheer you know matching up the the need for clinical trials alone with the amount of available capacity in the manufacturing sector there's a big gap that needs to be addressed by very focused attention to specifically gene therapy and remember all of the gene ther- cell and gene therapy manufacturers out there are not all focused on specific um, AAV-based gene therapy products. Some are manufacturing for different types of products. So for example, mRNAs or other genomic medicines, lentivirus, cell therapy focus. So we are very focused right now in our business on addressing this particular sector of the market and doing it well. Makes sense. Um, There have been a couple announcements from the White House over, I think, the last 18 months or so around biomanufacturing and their dedication to helping to facilitate an expansion in this sector. Um, How does that impact your business specifically? I think in a couple of ways. It's so exciting to me to see not only the public sector realizing the value of um, bringing biomanufacturing into the U.S. And and let's I don't know if it's exactly back in the U.S., but onto the U.S. soil and owning it ourselves. But it's also exciting that the government is really putting their stamp and resources behind it. I think this is going to open up really a lot of paths for companies like ours to engage with the government at large, to engage with each other, to engage with clients, and really start to hone in on some of the inherent difficulties in this space, especially with advanced complex therapeutics. So for example, it isn't just enough to build a bunch of facilities and build GMP suites that isn't going to address the capacity crunch. We also need to develop new technologies, new processes, new ways of doing things more efficiently, all of which can really be supported and underpinned by government uh, support and investment grants or investment to really help to kind of build this industry up to be more efficient and help address and make these therapies more accessible to more people. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking as you were describing some of those challenges is that people are also somewhat of a limiting factor in this space. Can you, I mean, obviously you've been able to build a pretty large workforce. Um, You're providing quite a few jobs in, in the area you're in. Um, but are you often struck by the need to be training more people in this space so that uh, you have people who can actually be running these types of facilities? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think this is definitely a concern for anybody in this space that are we able to bring on board and ramp up quickly the talent that we need in the time frame that we need it? So we have to be planning really long range in terms of getting our workforce ready. So we have a couple of different approaches to this. Um, You know, within our company, we are really hiring at all of the different levels that you might think of for um, a biotech company, right? So, you know, I I don't, I certainly don't want people to think that we're only hiring the, the people with the PhDs and the postdocs and 20 years of experience. 
because we can really hire at all of the different levels, people who are fresh college grads, people with associate's degrees, you know, maybe people who have some certificates in biomanufacturing. And what we are doing is to build a robust training program in-house that will really serve to get that workforce ready for this type of manufacturing in this particular environment. And this, we have a team dedicated to this, our own learning and development team, really focused on readying our workforce, whatever level they are at, to be efficient in our operations. Additionally, when we go out and we are, you know, we have a really uh, robust talent acquisition team that goes out and spreads the word about Forge and that we're hiring and the types of roles that we're hiring. Part of that is really partnering with universities, some locally, some in the Midwest, some um, across the nation, to help to develop not only an awareness about our company, but to help to build maybe that funnel directly into Forge at all of the different levels. You know, again, we don't only seek out biologists or molecular biologists for these types of positions. It's going to really be anyone who can um, be somewhat technically trained to do some of these operations within these facilities or maybe supervise some of these operations. Um, There are lots of roles in quality control and quality assurance in addition to being actually the operators in the suites manufacturing the drug product. Yeah, it's it's so impressive, you know, how much effort you have to put into the recruitment side of this type of business to make sure that you have uh, the talent and you're attracting the right talent to, to your company. Um, I want to understand a little bit more about the hybrid business model because it's something that I think many people are discussing. Uh, there's There's been a discussion around like, platform versus product in the biotech sector. Um, And it seems like Forge is able to balance these two sides of the company. Can you talk about what that looks like from a management perspective and how do those two sides like interact at all? Are they very different culturally? Um, Like how do you kind of uh, set that up? So, Great questions, <laughs> all great questions. Uh, fundamentally, we believe that we are a CDMO, a gene therapy CDMO that is built by and for gene therapy developers. So what we mean by that is we serve the gene therapy developers who are our clients, our biotech and pharma clients. But we all actually come from a gene therapy development background. So we have lived these experiences of trying to uh, design and manufacture and scale therapeutic products to um, IND and beyond. So we intimately understand some of the challenges and also have direct experience with the interactions from regulators, right? So different regulatory bodies, whether it's US or European or other. So we're able to really bring that mentality first to our clients. Navigating that challenge between these two sides of the business is an interesting one. So the way we've set it up is that we have these two sides of the business that operate really relatively independently. So the therapeutics arm of the business actually contracts manufacturing to the CDMO side of the business. So we are in effect a client of our own business. We put in place a a firewall actually between the developers on the therapeutic side of the business and the CDMO focused uh, team members so that we can really make sure that um, you know, there's that firewall for our clients, okay? Navigating our own therapeutic development, though, 
So bringing forward FBX 101 through regulatory interactions has been extremely beneficial and informative for the CDMO side of the business. Because what that means is in our interactions with regulators on FBX 101, we are putting our facility, our processes, our uh, people, our products in front of the regulators before our clients do. And so we are incorporating any feedback that we get that we can implement on the CDMO side right into our operations and workflows in real time. I think, I think that the important point is that we are a CDMO first. Most of our company is dedicated to CDMO services and CDMO-focused activities. Only a small part of our business is actually focused on the therapeutics, and we have a small team dedicated to that. And it sounds like it at least gives you a bird's eye view into what the FDA or regulators might be looking for as far as um, process and and manufacturing, and and that helps you kind of uh, helps you help your clients with their processes. Is that accurate? It absolutely is. I mean, we have we're really navigating this alongside our clients, right? So we are taking um, our own products from small. Um, small-scale needs at the non-clinical stage through non-clinical studies, interacting with the regulators to design those studies, working through those studies, and then thinking about those clinical lots and what those need to look like, not only for the FDA, but also for European needs, right? So it, it very much is that all of these regulatory perspectives and deep understanding of how we navigate that path is being brought to the table for CDMO clients too. So without speaking to specific examples of what we've been able to implement, um, I hope I gave I, that gave you a reasonable flavor for what we are you know, able to bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. You have, um, in a sense, uh, regulatory experience in addition to being a CDMO, um, yes. which I think offers a unique advantage potentially. Yes. Um, I'm curious, just like maybe for folks who don't necessarily appreciate how uh, in use the biomanufacturing capacity is in this country, can you talk about how how booked out your suites are at the moment? I don't know if that's something you can disclose, but maybe just like broad strokes, like you know, we're booked out for a year or <laughs> I don't know how long it is, but look, what I can say is that uh, the demand for our services is pretty strong and robust. Uh, you know, even in this economic client climate, uh, we have over 30 clients that we can say publicly, some of which we have announced, some of which are, you know, publicly listed big companies and some of which are smaller biotechs. Uh, we continue to see good, strong demand for all different stages of client needs. And that means research-grade needs for non-clinical work that maybe um, maybe earlier programs are navigating right now, all the way through clinical um, requests for proposals, uh, as well as some incoming requests for proposals that look really out into commercial. So again, as this industry or AAV specifically is maturing as a field, more and more of our clients are obviously getting ready for phase three and commercial readiness. And they need to be locking in the manufacturers that they will be using for these um, commercial commercial lots. And so it's really been a, a, a good view into kind of what's coming. Can you comment at all on the types of AAV that are most requested within your pool of clients? Yeah, for us, we've actually dealt with probably every serotype of AAV that you can think of that are the common ones. We have also experience with 
working with and scaling up manufacturing of novel, you know, and novel engineered capsids. That's awesome. I know there are numerous companies out there working on some of these novel capsids and some really exciting data showing uh, that you can, you know, selectively target different tissues uh, at a higher efficiency. You can um, reduce the targeting to the liver, which has traditionally been a challenge in this space. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to see some of that that new work and see companies start to uh, experiment with some of these new capsids and hopefully for the betterment of the the delivery to the patient. Absolutely. Um, it's so exciting. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so exciting. Yeah. Um, I want to take a step back to your career. Uh, can you talk about your transition from academia to industry and what was going through your mind and kind of how you made some of the decisions as far as your career journey? Jocelyn, I wonder if I should start with the whole career because it kind of ties all together. Yeah, yeah let's do that. Yeah. So I grew up in a little country in Southern Africa called Botswana. And when I was growing up, I lived through an HIV epidemic in Botswana. And what was so amazing to watch at that time was I saw a lot of scientists, doctors, epidemiologists come to Botswana and really help us to get a good handle on the epidemic, roll out antiretrovirals, roll out public health policies that really made an impact in the course of that epidemic. And so, so much so. That was, I saw highly technically trained scientists having a direct translational impact on public health. And I just was so inspired that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And that really led me to pursue really everything that I've done ever since. So I immigrated to the U.S. to go to college because I really wanted to work uh, to become a scientist. And I wanted to get my degrees in a in the U.S. where I felt that the best, most innovative science and research was happening. So that's how I ended up coming to the U.S., I always thought that I needed to have a PhD to um, become a scientist. And so I kind of did everything in undergrad to make sure that I could go to grad school, if that makes any sense, you know, doing undergraduate research, doing an honors thesis, and then applying to graduate school and getting ready, uh, you know, working in a lab in undergrad and making sure I was ready and, and really wanted to be in a lab for my PhD. Um, I went to graduate school. I studied molecular biology in both undergrad and graduate studies. And then somewhere along the way, I, I felt that, you know, for, for my postdoc, I didn't want to be in an academic setting. I really wanted to be closer to, uh, making medicines. And so I jumped into an industry postdoc. Uh, and this was in the Bay Area, Genentech. And that was really amazing for me because I really felt like I was part of, uh, you know, a biotech company that was having an impact, working with scientists who were so inspired to do translational work, but also really grounded in the discovery and research engine. And it was a really amazing training ground. And I knew that I always wanted to be in this space where I could kind of marry the, the discovery with that translation piece. And so fast forward now to what I'm doing now, which is I'm a scientist and entrepreneur. Uh, I'm in the role of head of product development, which means I very much am doing research or my team does research 
but also development because we are supporting and developing our products um, as they are. You know, I'm I'm in this space where I get to in my day to day life work on thinking about how we might design a study or design an experiment with the appropriate controls and how many replicates, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of designing a study. But then I also get to think about, okay, well, how do we want to position this for, for success, not only in regulatory terms, but also for clinical success, right? So how do we actually translate what we're finding in our non-clinical studies into uh, something that is meaningful in our clinical studies. So I get to kind of have the best of both of these worlds where I still get to play in the discovery and, and also have that development translational feel and impact. And even more so because with our FBX 101 product, we are as I said, we have an open clinical trial and we are actively enrolling patients. And so I really get to to feed that and fuel that side of my passion. And what an amazing accomplishment that is. I mean, just having having something that's in an open and an enrolling trial uh, is just, I think, an incredible accomplishment. Um, and and what a, an amazing story of you know, your pursuit of science and, and your career path. Um, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what doing an industry postdoc was like for folks who might be considering, you know, what to do for a postdoc and, and maybe just compare and contrast that to more of a traditional academic postdoc for folks who are less familiar with those types of programs, because I think it's a really interesting opportunity for people who are um, hoping to do something more translational. Mm-hmm. I will speak to, I don't have an experience doing an academic postdoc, but I can speak to contrasting the difference between doing research as a PhD student in an academic setting versus doing research uh, in a more, tr- uh, in industry. So I felt that when I was doing my research in an academic setting, it was really solely about the discovery and solely about, and and maybe it necessarily had to be because at the time that you're a PhD student, it should be about you are operating in a space that no one really has worked in before. You are contributing new knowledge to an area and it is about discovery. And that was wonderful for the time and place that I was in at that time. I just, you know, graduate school, I let myself really enjoy that period of my life focused on discovering. But towards the end of graduate school, I really was at that crossroads deciding between an academic and industry postdoc. And I thought that it felt to me that an industry postdoc would feel more translational. I didn't know for sure. I just felt maybe it would be different than an academic postdoc. So I can tell you when I did take it up, the the fundamentals of doing the research were the same in the industry postdoc, because especially at a place like Genentech, where they really help you to do a research-based project, it it feels the same. It's still about the discovery, and it's still about um, the novel contributions that you are making. But what was different is really being around and exposed to people who are thinking more translationally and bringing products forward. And so I really used that time in my postdoc to network and learn through informational interviews with a lot of different people in different positions in the company and different roles in the company about what it takes to build a biotech company. You know, I talked to project managers, I talked to people in sales, something called competitive intelligence. I didn't even know that competitive intelligence was a career, Um, but those are the professional spies of the world. Um, I talked to people in manufacturing, and, and it was just such a great place to learn about all of the different aspects that that 
go into and maybe even all the different kinds of careers that you can have when you're in industry. And for me, even though fundamentally my project was not a translational project while I was a postdoc, it somehow felt more translational or closer to the patient for me. And I really enjoyed that period in time when I was um, part of a big biotech company. And I think it inspired me to want to continue to be part of the biotech industry in in all of my um, future endeavors. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm so impressed that you were actively interviewing people across these different roles and and learning about all of these different uh, jobs that one can have in the industry. I think that's really impressive. So I'm curious, what components for you were kind of required for you to take this next step with Forge? Were there things in your you know, tool belt, if you will, that you felt equipped to take this on? You mean to make the switch from scientist to entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good question. Um, you know, I spent a couple of years in academic translation and commercialization. So I moved to Ohio uh, a couple of years ago, and my first job in Ohio, one of my first jobs in Ohio, was uh, at Ohio State University in a translational incubator. And what I did there, I think, is directly applicable to helping me make this transition. So what I did was look across the university and think about what projects different uh, professors, different principal investigators were working on that we could fund to move to the next inflection point. So translate further to make them attractive for commercialization. So that really helped me to gain experience, not only doing a lot of search and evaluation and diligence and interacting with a lot of different scientists across a lot of different therapeutic areas, but it also helped me to think about road mapping a product, right? So from an idea to be thinking about, okay, what would it take to make this something that a commercial entity might be interested in taking a look at? And I got to have experiences pitching some of those projects to potentially interested parties. And I think all of those experiences really helped make this transition a little bit easier to become an entrepreneur where your job is, well, part of your job is really fundamentally um, road mapping, not only the product, but also the company vision. And then selling it, right? Pitching it so that you can generate excitement about it from investors, but also generate excitement from your potential employees, right? Because that's absolutely the fundamental. If you cannot recruit people to join you in the in the vision, um, your company will will not really ever get off the ground. So I think it was a great training ground and maybe intermediate experience between being fully at the bench and being a scientist to transitioning to what I do now, where I still get to kind of dabble in both. And obviously, fundamentally, I am now an entrepreneur. (laughs) What a great bridge and an experience that that role uh, played for you in your your development. what advice do you have for companies that are looking to move into the clinic but might not necessarily have, you know, regulatory experience or uh, commercialization experience? Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to take a step back and do a gaps analysis. So take a look at what your vision is and then step back and see where you maybe need some support and maybe extra guidance, right? And think then after you identify those areas, think very carefully about whether you need to backfill, you know, getting that guidance with an an employee or a new team member, 
or whether you can consult that out and contract that out and maybe outsource some of that, um, maybe problem solving and, and road mapping to somebody else who has experience in this area. It's important for you to be able to do that because it shows your investors that you are able to think critically about the vision that you're painting and fill in the holes. <laughs> and also that you know how to take action, right? That you know how to problem solve something. Um, so I think in the broadest strokes, what, that's probably advice that's applicable, whether it's considering regulatory development for your product or perhaps even a, a, a financing strategy or a go-to-market strategy for your company at large. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, I want to jump to uh, highlights from your career journey. You've obviously you know, had many stages in this journey from your undergraduate experience to graduate school to your postdoc at Genentech uh, to now, you know, leading so many efforts at Forge and, and becoming a real scientist entrepreneur. Can you share a particular day or highlight in your career with us? I think one of the most fulfilling things day to day for me has been to watch this company grow from you know this this idea on paper or in in the minds of the co-founders into a living breathing thing that now employs over 320 people um and that is serving so many clients that are developing medicines for others. So it is certainly more than I ever imagined was possible when I was growing up in Gaborone, Botswana. <laughs> and so to me, it, every time I think about that, that there are so many families that are affected by the existence of our company, whether it's our own employees' families or whether it's the, the patients who ultimately receive these medicines, I am just blown away by the ability to be a part of it and contribute in whatever way that I can to it every day. That to me is just, I, it will never get old. I love that. Um, you were recently recognized as one of the fiercest women in life sciences in 2022 uh, can you talk about that recognition and what advice you would give to young women out there or, or just young science, young uh, future scientists in general? Jocelyn, my, uh, my marketing folks here at Forge joked about this interview as uh, two fiercest women in life sciences walk into a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So congratulations to you also for um, being recognized as a fiercest woman in life sciences. And I would love to turn the question over to you as well um, <laughs> after this. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm so honored to be part of the list, um, of course. Uh, but, you know, what, what I actually really maybe cherish about this list is that it's given this public platform to so many women over every year that it's been public to be able to talk about their stories. So, you know, after you, after you receive this recognition, they actually do a really nice interview and write up about you. And Helen Florsch, who wrote the, the piece about me, she wrote, you know, a really in-depth, thoughtful article about my career journey. And, it gave me a platform to be able to share that with the world. And that's what I really take away from this, that, you know, this is now a resource on the internet that any young person or woman can look to, to understand the career journeys of so many amazing women. It highlights some of their challenges along the way. It highlights what inspired them, how they 
how they brought all of their experiences together to to get to where they are. And it's a resource. And I've read so many of them now. And it provides so much more color than what is available just from, you know, reading someone's LinkedIn profile. And so I just think this is an amazing way of sharing those stories and recognizing these women and creating a resource as well. So back to you, Helen. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, yeah, I, that's such a great point. And it, it's something I was struck by um, when I had my interview too, is that it's not just this little list with some names, but they actually do these in-depth interviews and they they post all of them. So I think the list is normally, I don't know, around 20 people or so. And they have every single interview um, linked in there. And it really is such a great resource. I love that they do that. I love that they give their reporters the time um, and space to to share those stories in such great detail um, when many other outlets might just have, you know, one small quote or one tiny sliver of each person's story. So it's a, it's very cool. And I think that's, it's similar in flavor to what, you know, this podcast is about is, uh, sharing people's career journeys and, and having that content online so that people can access stories and, and be inspired by others. And, um, you know, I do, believe that representation matters and sometimes just like hearing someone else say that they were able to do something is enough to give other people permission to go after that thing. Uh, so I appreciate you, you know, sharing that and, and sharing your story with us. Um, Justin, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that what you're doing here is so great because it allows us to show that it can be done. And also to share the barriers that we have faced, right? So I think being more open about it will help us all to uplift each other. Yeah. On that note, uh, have there been any barriers for you as far as your career journey? I know, you know, immigrating to the U.S. is one maybe you want to touch on some of the challenges there and any insights you can share about that experience uh, that might be helpful for our listeners? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I maybe continue to grapple with, <laughs> even 20 years later, is finding my voice. So when I was growing up in Botswana, it, it it's just a very different culture where it isn't as open to questioning the, the norm as it is here or questioning your teachers, you know? It's almost like, well, if it's coming down from the teacher, it must be correct, right? And so you're not as encouraged to question and form your own ideas, maybe as you are here, or think so independently as you are here, or maybe even voice yourself as independently as you are here. So when I came to college here and I interacted with so many amazing um, students who had grown up in America, I just felt like I didn't have a voice and they all had theirs. They they all had their very strong self-identity. They all knew what, you know, they had opinions on so many different topics because that debate is encouraged and that questioning is encouraged. And I love that. I love that because I I think I always have done that and have always had that going on in myself, but maybe never felt as free to speak up about it. And so I loved being here in America. And that's why I, I have stayed because I can speak up and I can question. And, but it is something that I really had to work on, you know, I mean, so much of what you got graded on in college was about your participation. <laughs> And I really had to work on that because my natural tendency is not to speak my opinion, you know? Um, so it was definitely a little rough in those first years when, when I had to uh, find that voice. And, you know, it's funny because I think ultimately what brought me to America, which is science, 
actually helped me to find my voice because when I went on to grad school, I realized that, you know, when I'm talking about my science and talking about things that are objectively true, like, you know, data, right? You you can't argue with data and facts necessarily. You can have an opinion about it, but data is data. It really helped give me the confidence I I needed to speak about it and to share that data and to find my voice. And so I think probably to this day, I'm most comfortable talking about data. (laughs) I can relate to that (laughs) for sure. It's funny thinking about that because I do feel like I had a similar experience in the sense of I had a scientific mode where when I was in the lab and presenting data, you do feel very much empowered to share Mm -hmm. your work and your research and your voice in a sense. Um, But then maybe outside of that, like grappling with how to like represent yourself or communicate um, opinions, it might not be as straightforward as like, when you're presenting, you know, your, your QPCR results or what it may be. (laughs) Um, But thank you for sharing that. That's, I think, you know, important for people to acknowledge and, and, and understand that people go through that process of uh, discovery and self-discovery and um, finding ways to, to communicate um, your vision. And obviously you have so much to say and so much to do like uh, it's just awesome that you you know were able to like put so much into action um and really build something of incredible value it helps me also to remember that the quietest people in the room still have opinions and thoughts that are you know of value and we just have to be able to make the space and make it a place where they feel comfortable to share that. Um, so, so I tried to do that in my in my workplace, and try to remember that while debate and critical debate, especially, is a really good thing, some people may not be or feel as confident with it. So yeah. I, Definitely, I'm encouraging you know team members to to practice to, mm-hmm. to practice and engage in it because that's how you become comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that you bring you bring that culture of participation into your teams as a result of your own experience, which I think is really valuable, right? Like the the loudest voices in the room aren't always you know, describing, um, you know, all of the components that we need to be thinking about when we're making a decision, for instance, and uh, calling on people who might not be um, as extroverted uh, can can really, I think, add value to teams and, and management. Um, so that's a, that's a good reminder. Oh, I had a question oh. as far as, um, like, making decisions about the size of your business because obviously you have so much demand how do you how do you balance like growth over mm-hmm. you know main, maintenance of of a particular size or capacity like are you having discussions regularly about you know building out more capacity or and again, if that's not something you can share and is more confidential, we can edit it out. <laughs> um, but I'm just generally curious, like how how you go about thinking about things like that. Yeah, we've definitely been, uh, you know, for the last three years in building mode, building a lot, right? Not only the company and the vision, but literally the physical facility. And <laughs> we are still building it. Uh, we recently actually had to launch a big construction project to expand the office space for our team because, you know, we have now grown 
to over 300 people and we need space for all of those people. So that facility will be opening next week, the new office space. We're very excited about that. Um, I think building and scaling a business has to be very thoughtfully done. So you could have a big vision, but how quickly do you want to go to attack that vision? It has to be backed up with um, not only your ability to actually raise the finances to do it. Uh, so for us, in our case, we've raised over $330 million so far from venture capital investors um, towards this vision. But it also needs to be balanced with, you know, what are you really seeing on the ground in terms of the demand for your product and your services, right? So this is a constant analysis and reanalysis that is ongoing um, amongst our team, our leadership team, uh, thoughtfully building out um, where we think it, the market is, you know, most needed, right? Um, and it's going to be different from for every business. And it's really important that you have thoughtful and experienced team members who are able to really guide on on that thinking and those principles and board members too can help advise. Yeah. I don't know if you want to touch on that, but it seems like board members and and scientific advisory board members can play a major role in, you know, the, the make or break business of biotech. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on what that process has been like for your company and identifying board members and, um, how valuable or invaluable that can be? Uh, so let me comment on the scientific advisory board that you brought up. Uh, we, about 18 months into the life of our business, launched our own scientific, independent scientific and manufacturing advisory board. So this is a group of gene therapy experts who have you know deep experience in gene therapy man, uh, development and manufacturing experience. And they really kind of serve as a as an externally um, as a board that is independently vetting and kind of reviewing some of the hypotheses that we have about where we think the market is going or the new products that we may bring online for our service offering. And it's really useful to have them out there. You know, they're the ones who are out there. Um, at the forefront of the research and development in their respective, you know, a lot of them are academics uh, or industry professionals, and they're kind of able to independently back check what, what we think. And it's been really useful and informative to have that uh, available to us as a resource. Such a smart uh, decision to put together a board like that. And I can imagine has been, really helpful in in the development of your business. And I think um, great insights for for our listeners who are interested in pursuing these types of endeavors. So, so Dr. De Silva, I know you're passionate about scientific communication and diversifying workplaces. Can you talk about any initiatives or strategies you've implemented to that effect? Absolutely. So I'm really excited to tell you about an initiative called She Forges that we launched very early. Uh, I think it was year one of Forge as, as a company. Uh, so really early in our company growth. Uh, so Forge right now is about 50% women. And I'm really proud of that fact. Uh, so we have been able to maintain about 50-50 men and women throughout the life of this company. And She Forges was launched kind of as our first employee resource group um, because we had such a big quorum of women who were interested in being part of this group, which was really dedicated to and focused on um, celebrating women in our company, helping to provide a space where we could talk to each other about our successes or maybe some of our challenges. And then also having it structured as a very um, tactical set of uh, workshops and, and um, 
strengths building or upskilling type of um, endeavors so that we could help to make sure that we retain the talent and that we help them grow within our company. So what we do is we have a really quite structured program with an executive coach. Uh, we meet about once a month. And I think next week we're meeting as a, as a group and we're going to do a session on finance 101. And it's all going to be about biotech finance. So what are these terms that the finance team is throwing around? Um, what do they actually mean? How does the board evaluate our financial success? How should you be thinking about the financial success of our company? And just making sure that, you know, the women in our team are empowered to understand, uh, you know, certain aspects of the business or maybe to acquire skills like how to effectively negotiate or how to improve your executive presence, perhaps. So we do very focused working groups and sessions on that about once a month. And uh, this has been a great success. This uh, actually was featured last month as part of Women's History Month by Nature Biotech in a little article. And it specifically called out this initiative as an example of, you know, something that companies can do and implement very early in their, their growth or life cycle. Um, it's not something that has to wait until you are a mature, you know, 10-year-old company to, to start some of these things, right? So I'm really proud of um, all of the women in our company and, and all of the people in our company for embracing that that diversity and celebrating it. I love that. What a great program and I think call to action for companies to rely on their own community to enrich one another and develop one another and, and, and you know, really bring uh, skills and, and workshops that folks can can take with them. Um, it's really inspiring. And are you are you talking about the Nature Biotech article about the percentage of women in the workplace in biotech and kind of how how it's getting better across the board, but there's still kind of a lack of um, representation of women at the at the leadership level or the the higher levels within biotech. Um, I think it goes down to less than 20% or something like that. Yes. Do you want me to find the title of it and say it? Yeah, that'd be great. We can, we can link it in the uh, podcast notes. Um, cause I, I skimmed it, but I didn't uh, read the whole thing. So I might've missed the part about your program, but I love that that was mentioned. Our She Forges program was actually featured last month in Nature Biotechnology in an article called Women Build Strength in Numbers. Um, and it was part of uh, Women's History Month. And we were really called out as an example of what a company that is early in its life cycle can do to launch an employee resource group and really set the set the tone for how they want to uh, celebrate the diversity within their ranks uh, from very early on. And we're really proud of this. I love that. Like, what a great uh, message and um, call to action for other leaders in the biotech space. And, you know, you can really rely on your own company and, and community to enrich um, the culture of representation uh, an advancement. So um, really commend Forge and, and you for all the work you do in that space. Um, so just as we uh, wrap up here, are there any other call outs you'd like to make anything uh, coming up for Forge? And where can folks find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me online on LinkedIn and feel free to connect. Uh, we will also be, a, a number of us will be at our annual uh, gene therapy conference in Los Angeles, ASGCT 2023. Uh, that's coming up here in about six weeks in the first week of May, first or second week of May. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, May 15th to the 19th. I'll actually be there as well. <laughs> oh, we look forward to seeing you. Yeah, I can't wait. 
it's a great conference for for folks who are you know new or experienced in the space of gene and cell therapy so it's a it's a great one look forward to seeing you there and uh and so people can find you online and um anything as far as forge are you actively recruiting should we do any call outs for uh you know open job positions you have or anything like that yes absolutely forge is hiring we have a number of positions posted on our website at www.forgebiologics.com as well as plenty of job postings on linkedin but also please recognize not all of the job postings that are open are actually posted online. So please feel free to submit your resume or reach out to someone you may know in the company. Uh, A lot of our employees have actually joined us through referrals. So always welcome to to those folks. Awesome. Well, I just want to thank you, Dr. De Silva, for sharing your story with us, sharing how much you've been able to accomplish Um, from, you know, your undergrad to graduate experience to building Forge and and leading with with so much uh, that you bring with you, um, starting She Forges and, uh, you know, just inspiring everybody with um, your focus on building a great company and providing services to other companies so that they can get their medicines to patients. Um, I'm really just so impressed by what you've done in this space and appreciative of your time today. Uh, so thanks so much for being on Lady Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. I really enjoyed the conversation and interacting with you. Cheers. Cheers. That wraps up my interview with Dr. De Silva. I learned so much from her experience, and I hope you did too. If you enjoyed that episode of Lady Scientist Podcast, I recommend you check out the interview we just did with Claire Aldridge and Emily McGinnis from Tasha Therapeutics and Form Bio. Uh, we also have several other episodes with biotech founders. You can check out our female founders playlist on YouTube and learn more about some of these awesome women and their experience building biotech companies. I think it's a, a great resource for folks out there who are interested in starting their own companies. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode if you found it insightful. Uh, thanks so much for supporting the show and listening to Lady Scientist Podcast.